Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode, uh, we're going to be covering God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World by Scott Harrower. This dude's awesome. Uh, he's from Down Under, and you can tell right away. He's he's super fun. I can't wait to get into this. Before we do, I want to give a shout out to all the Patreon supporters, the patrons. You guys are awesome. A couple of you have joined recently, and I really, really appreciate that, like genuinely. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, I'm trying to go back to school. Just graduated at TEDS. And um, you guys are helping to pay for that. You're helping to pay for the podcast, helping me buy books, helping me. You know, it's, it's awesome. I really appreciate it. You guys can go over there if you uh, want to support me. You can go uh, follow the link in my description in my bio wherever you're listening to this and uh you can get early access to episodes you can get some of my my uh papers academic papers that are there and uh you can get early up you can get all sorts of mugs and stickers and, and fun stuff over there so please consider becoming a patreon patron uh also if you want to support this podcast um subscribe over at youtube and hit the notification bell so you, you can find all the new episodes on time and then uh third way and a couple of you guys have taken me up on this as well. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review, and uh, leave me a comment. That would be huge. I really appreciate that. There's all this algorithm stuff that happens. Everyone looks at Apple. So it actually really matters a ton. So please do that if you have benefited from the podcast. But enough about me. Let's jump in. We're going to be talking God of all comfort. Again, a Trinitarian response to the horrors of this world. we got Scott Harrower. So here we go. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Oh, good day, mate. It's great to be with you. I, I love the pod. I've loved your guests, and I'm a huge fan of the moustache, so I get to see it live. <laughs> That's right, man. This is awesome. Uh, if if somebody searches Disco Fever, uh, Scott Disco Fever Hero, are they going to find you, man? Like, you might just uh, ruin, oh, ruin man, your book sales. Footage out there of me ripping it up on the dance floor, um, in my mind. Nah, there's, yeah. there's none. Uh, yeah. Disco Fever, you know, it's a reference to a, re- a wrestler who used to wear purple flares. I love that guy. And uh, yeah, whenever I'm on the dance floor, I kind of try to channel a little bit of him. So yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, okay. So you got this book, God of All Comfort. I thought this was an adaptation of your of your uh, dissertation, but it's not. It's just a book that you you took up yourself. What what was the topic of your dissertation? And uh, yeah, who'd you do that with? Where, where was that at? 
Yeah, sure. So I did most of my studies in Australia and then our principal got nabbed by Ted's, Graham mm-hmm. Cole. And I thought, well, that's the kind of Jedi master I want to follow. So I followed him to Ted's. Um, and while I was there, I did a PhD uh, published as Trinitarian Self and Salvation, where I looked at the question of Rana's rule, that yeah. the economic trinity is the imminent trinity and vice versa. I did a biblical assessment of it. I'm using Luke Acts and Hebrews, and then I um, showed how when it comes to ethics, um, the New Testament doesn't use the Trinity as its model, but it uses the incarnation. Hmm. And because wow, Rona's rule cannot be read strictly, as I showed from Luke, Acts and Hebrews, we really had to ditch a lot of what uh, Ware and Grudem were arguing for at the time in terms of um, subordination of the Son to the Father in eternity, even though they came up with a category such as a functional subordination. Yeah. So it was basically a table-clearing exercise to say, look, the strict realist reading of Rana's rule does not work. It's unbiblical. We need to get rid of it. Now we need to think hard about well, what does a modified reading of it involve. Yeah, man, that's that's fantastic. So for the audience, uh, I had a whole conversation, a whole episode with Camden Busey on Rahner's rule because he did his work on on uh, Karl Rahner as well, uh, Catholic theologian who said the economic trinity is the Im- uh, imminent trinity. I think he uses, but I always say ontological trinity. It's like God yeah. in in and of himself is the same as God and his actions and and vice versa. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Is was your project motivated by like? Like Bart, are you are you like pretty uh, hardcore Bartian, or because no, no, at all. It was motivated to... by being um, being yeah. an Anglican priest, a sort of humble uh, parish priest. Mm-hmm. I uh, was very concerned that uh, my parishioners know that God loves them mm-hmm. and that God is near. And I read an essay by uh, Rana where he said, "God is near to us in Christ, and He's near to us because we're fundamentally." built as God's images in such a way to receive the Trinity. Right. And, and I thought, wow, like how does Joe Bloggs in, in, in the second pew and Mary Ellen in the fifth one, how do they know that Christ is near? And I was meeting with people and praying with them in their houses and um, just thinking about how it was that Jesus, who is risen, is with us by the Spirit and therefore God is, is within, near, supporting and through our community and um that that led to the project to thinking about okay how do we recognize god's nearness in the world um so it was really a pastoral question that drove the whole thing and um you know to be frank that's basically behind pretty much everything i've written um after trinitarian self and salvation i wrote a book on um women in the new testament with a mate of mine and that was basically because it was a hot potato issue um, in the churches here and everyone was looking at Paul and going to war over that. And I thought, nah, let's look at Luke Acts and see what that says. Let's treat it as a different layer of archaeological evidence. Yeah. And uh, the results are pretty amazing. Uh, Mary is the sort of first interpreter of the Old Testament, for example, in, the, in Luke, and she does in Luke what Peter does in Acts in terms of interpreting salvation history, and it just goes on from there and turns out the women are quite astounding. Yeah, she's like um, the first biblical theologian, right? Oh, mate, yeah, it's amazing. It really is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I wrote that out of pastoral concern, and then um, Mike Bird and I edited a book um, on Trinity Without Hierarchy for Craigle. That came out of a classroom discussion with our students, 
Um, we've just edited the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers again because there wasn't much that was great for our students to read. So I'm very much someone who just sort of wanders around the place and uh, like a hobbit just finds interesting things that need to be spoken about. And yeah. if it's trauma and how we recover, well, I'm happy to help. Yeah. Well, you're, it seems like you're doing a lot of like biblical uh, biblical studies for a systematic guy. Don't you know we don't do that? We just we talk about abstract <laughs> doctrines. So you're, do, you're doing too much Bible stuff, man. I think the thing, being raised an Anglican and living in the Anglican church, you're acutely aware of the fact that we need like a foundation and a warrant to say anything. Right. So it's really a philosophical decision. Like it's wanting to be a realist. Mm-hmm. Um where do we go to know what's true? And the options in the Anglican Church are kind of varied and outrageous and multiple. Um, So I think that's why, and Graham Cole was great on this, you know, the Bible really is the the norming norm. It's the foundation um, for what we do, and it must be if we understand it as God's um, revelation to us. Yeah. So, yeah, so I use the Bible a lot because I need to check myself. Um, We all need a good check. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned Graham Cole and, and talk about how he's a, a Jedi. I'd always heard good stories about him. Uh, I was, you know, unfortunately, I uh, wasn't able to take a class with him when I was at TED's. Uh, he's, he's usually teaching PhD courses. But um, I went to a systematic, like, colloquium or whatever, and we were all there hanging out. And uh, we we're talking about Graham's book, uh, Dr. Cole's book, uh, on on the Bible as the norming norm. And, yeah, sure. uh and I, I realized this is probably the smartest dude here. And, and everyone at TED's, all the systematicians were super crazy smart. But then Graham Cole just talks about how he used to teach philosophy. And he starts talking about modal logic and lays out this proposition in his head only with all the premises and then returns back to it and doesn't get any of them wrong. Like just like he's got a blackboard <laughs> in his mind. And he we're does. just jumping through topics of philosophy and theology and apologetics. And it was insane. And I just realized this guy is a Jedi. He's, he's the man. Yeah, he, he really is the man because um, I can tell you that I was lucky enough to get some of his secondhand books when he uh, left Australia, left a whole bunch at Ridley where I'm at, and also in the States he cleared out his library. And I went in, scooped in a whole bunch, and it was scooping and scoring because when you look at what he's got in his books, he's read it, he's boxed entire sections, he's made comments, this person digested everything he read and he read very widely and he had great experience working for the government here in Australia and then theological colleges. And, yeah, he, he has this uh, photographic memory. Mm-hmm. He's very bright. And I think the main thing I appreciate about Graham is he knows which debates matter. Yeah. So when you read his books, say, on the incarnation, you, you could write a million books, right? But he, he knows the function of biblical theology and then he knows which debates to pick. So, for example, was was it the fact that the son was always going to become incarnate? He might choose that debate, but he might not choose, say, the primacy of Christ as the debate to discuss. Um, so he knows which debates to pick, and it doesn't mean that he hasn't resolved it all in his mind, but it means he's a good teacher Yeah. and he knows not to overwhelm us. I think he understands that we're not at his level and, <laughs> and he accommodates to us. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's like the nurse whispering to the baby, right? That's going yeah. cold. I mean, I, I certainly felt like that yeah. when I'd meet with him. Um, but because he's so nice, you don't walk away feeling like a worm, um, yeah. which, which is great because yeah. you could. 
Well, I was uh, during that colloquium, I, I asked him about open theism because I, I had no idea what to even think of it. And I was like, what do we make of, of open theists? And he's like, you know, I, I just wish that they would have proposed it uh, for, for a, as a disputation. And he, right. he went on. I don't want to disclose everything he said or anything, but it was like the, the, the wisest thing. It was so theologically informed, but it was also super wise. And it really loosened me up and, and helped me like think about theology and how I want to do If I ever have some kind of crazy contra, uh, controversial view, I'm going to take his advice. I'm going to bring it up as a, as a disputation, disputandi or whatever, whatever word yeah. it's, right? Uh, in, instead of just saying, here's what's up and I'm going to... And so we could talk open theist uh, stuff later. Maybe we'll get someone on. But yeah, so well, Graham's a man. Like, yeah, yeah. He, and we're talking virtues, basically, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. What I see in Graham, and I think is necessary for all theologians to actually be a good one, is is virtue. So what he shows us is the humility to say uh, a doctrine like the Trinity is one level above the text of the Bible, but a doctrine like open theism and its claims is probably three or four levels above the text. That's the kind of language he uses. Hmm. And he's humble enough to say, hey, this proposal he may have about heaven or hell or whatever is three levels above the text and might not be normative. Yeah. Um, whereas another claim he'll make, he'll be very strong about because he can see it directly in the text. Yeah. So I tell you the truth, he is someone who embodies uh, the kind of virtues that Jesus speaks about uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So he's certainly someone that I wanted to imitate. I, I remember reading uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ and thinking, well, that's such an amazing claim for a person to make. But I've met a few people in my life and Graham's one of them. And um, yeah, where you could say, mate, I really, I'd like to imitate this bloke because I think he does imitate Christ and yeah. I'd like to become this kind of a person. So I think the, the whole question of virtues and theologians is live. I remember um, Van Hooser began one of our prolegomena sessions talking about virtues being good for you as a theologian. Drawing from Aline Sherry. So I think what, what's lovely about Ted's is we've got a group of Christ-like people who are doing theology. Yeah, yeah, and and they're crazy smart too, which is great because they they're not afraid to go wherever you want to wherever you want to go where your questions are at. So uh, Scott, how did you how did you move from uh, you went from changing the perspective from like a, a Ronarian Trinitarian emphasis to Christ, and now you're in this project you've moved to uh, a Trinitarian response to the horrors of this world. How how this uh, Trinitarian response to to horrors and drama uh, trauma come about? Sure. So um, I um, I was an artist out of high school, but I needed a, a real job, you know, to fund my art. So I became a nurse, and okay. I worked in uh, emergency and trauma rooms for for a decade. And um, look, it was there that I was a Christian, um, but I was seeing uh, horrific things happen. Um, people would come in with all kinds of injuries, um, both immediate ones like being stabbed or historic ones. Uh, someone was having a psych crisis because of a history of abuse. And as a Christian, uh, I was there to help in the trauma room, but I had questions about like, like, like really, mate, where is God in all this? What are you doing? And then the longer I worked in these departments, I saw the same people coming back again and again. Um, and so my question was not just where's God in this moment, but where is he going forward hmm. for these families um, whose lives had just been turned upside down um, and weren't going to be the same ever again. Um, so it really began uh, there in my um, 
nursing career and it, it echoed my experience growing up in Argentina as a missionary kid where a lot of people were disappeared and I remember one of my earliest childhood memories is of the mothers of the disappeared holding these placards with photos of their disappeared children and they would march in the plaza and I remember as a little kid in the middle of a civil war and then we had the war with England and everything just realizing things like to use Plantinga's phrase aren't the way they're supposed to be but we used to attend this little Anglican church and at the front of the church there was this altar piece of Jesus Jesus with his friends and you'd have communion there and you'd, you'd look at Jesus with his friends and there was a golden background and I sort of lived between these two worlds yeah. of Jesus and his friends in a beautiful garden, gold background, yet there were all these horrors going on. So by the time I was, you know, 25, I was like, oh, Jesus, this is a problem. Um, so it's always been there. And um, my wife is a social worker and she works in the realm of domestic violence. So the problems just snowballed, really, and yeah. I just couldn't get away from it. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I I had an experience in the classroom one time when there was a, a, a bombing in England and one of our students had been really sick and all this stuff happened and I was supposed to teach apologetics and I realised that my pastor radar had been flicked off and I wasn't in an apologetics class because I sensed a whole lot of anger in the room. Hmm. I sensed that my students who'd signed up for an apologetics class, we were supposed to do the logical problem of evil that day, they were angry at God. One of them told me that when he watched The Passion of Christ, the movie, he was happy that Jesus got it. Wow. Like, it was good. It was good that Jesus got laid into because that guy, and I understand why, he was just so angry at God about all this stuff that happened yeah. in his life. So I realized, hey, in addition to the logical problem of evil and dealing with that, there's this pastoral aspect where we need to deal with the problem of evil and deal with everything that comes out of trauma. And at the same time I'm teaching early Christianity, which is one of the main classes I teach, and we've got the Trinitarian Creed, and that's like the unique thing about Christianity, Trinity, Incarnation, Atonement. Uh, How is is this historical stuff and the reality of God, the Trinity, related to dealing with the pain and the anger that my Christian students have Hmm. to do with their experiences in the world? What's the relationship? So I just started digging away. Yeah, man. Well, um, that's a great segue to d- is the problem of of horrors and trauma. Is that uh, like a subset of the problem of evil? Is it a close relative? Is it something completely different? Yeah. So in terms of the cluster of problems of evil, the problem of horrors and trauma is not the logical problem of evil that says it can't be the case that God exists right. because of certain you know, propositions. Um, rather, it says uh, because it's part of the evidential or emotional problem of evil, it says given the staggering degree and number of horrors in the world, it's highly unlikely that a God who's all-knowing, all-good and all-powerful exists. There may be a God, but he's either finite, less knowing, not particularly good. Um, so it's it's a species of the evidential slash emotional problem of evil Yeah, where the claim is it's really unlikely that a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God exists. It's not yeah. necessarily illogical. Okay. Um, did you by chance have, have Dr. Feinberg at all when, when you were at uh, TED's? 
No, I didn't, okay. but I've read a lot of his his works. Okay, yeah, because yeah, because he, he he makes that that point over and over that it's he he taught a whole class called the problems of evil, and that, right. that with him, and he and he always makes that point that look, there's not one problem, there's many, and they all arise for different people based on their theology and and whatnot. And I think you did a great job there of of, of fleshing that out. Oh yeah, I've I've read him, and I, I mean, just pastorally, I found what he says about Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine very helpful. Mm-hmm. The secret things belong to the Lord, and that is a great comfort because um, God does have sufficient moral reasons for allowing what what happens to us and mm-hmm. to others. But mate, there's secret things that belong to Him because I don't know I don't know why He allows these things to happen, and I, I found that really really helpful. Yeah, well, okay, so that's a dude. You're so good at this, man. So that's another uh, segue. Is this? Is your book, God of Comfort, um, are you setting out a theodicy then, or is it uh, like more more like, like counseling? What, what would you make of, of your, your work in the book? Well, channeling, uh, Graham Cole, it's more modest than the theodicy. Yeah. It's a defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What it's trying to say is it's an apologetic work. It's saying after uh, trauma and horrors, we need to avail ourselves of, of medicine, psychology, everything that social workers have to offer us. However, what's unique for Christians is that we have God, the Trinity, on our side, and that may enable a deeper level of recovery after trauma than what would be possible without him. Yeah. So just as this is an evidential problem of evil, here is an evidential argument for the fact that there is evidence that God is good in the world and working in the world and doing something about it. Hmm. So it's a counter argument to all the evidence you have that, that God isn't particularly good. I'm saying, mate, there is all this evidence that God actually is good. And here it is if we have the eyes to see, hmm. which is why perception is a big, a big part of the argument. So yeah. it's actually an argument. It's an apologetic argument. And, um, of course, it's got strong pastoral dimensions because this is a very big pastoral problem. But I've drawn on analytic theology um, to develop the model of what a horror is and to make clear what I'm talking about. So it's a, it's a blend of analytic theology, pastoral theology, all aimed at um, an evidential argument in the realm of apologetics. Yeah. Well, dude, that's why I like what, I like your book so much because it is all those things. And too often, I don't want to harp on anyone, but, but too often for real, um, people separate them out and it's just not as powerful because you're, because we're, we're, not just uh, brains on sticks or whatever, like uh, to quote a famous theologian, but we're we're this unified thing. We're 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 mental and we're uh, emotional and we're volitional. And so I, I like that you're being interdisciplinary because I think we are interdisciplinary beings. And I think that uh, the apologists out there, many who watch this this channel, if you're not hitting on the pastoral dimension, you're doing it wrong. And then for those, like the pastors, I went to school with pastors. Uh, I was trying to study theology and I had all these pastors in here. And so often they go, hey, well, from a pastoral perspective, and they wouldn't actually answer the apologetic questions. They would just right. kind of kind of bloviate because they're good at at the rhetoric there, but they didn't actually tell you anything. And so this is what I like about your work, man. I think you're bringing it all together and really hitting on all the uh, different aspects of, of our being. With- yeah, thank you. Yeah, dude, for sure. With that in mind, you just you brought up how uh, you define trauma and horrors. Can you can you lay that out for us? Yeah, sure. So um, the the backstory to trauma and horrors is really important, mm-hmm. and this is the fact that God is um, God, the Trinity, uh, three persons in relation, um, who is a personal, relational, holy, and loving being in Himself. So that that's Him. 
And then he creates a, a garden, a perfect place of shalom, which is aimed at, at sort of thriving, at teeming life uh, for all creatures according to their natures. And that's the kind of God that he is. And horrors are, are disruptions hmm. um, of shalom, uh, which is wholeness, um, thriving, peace, justice, and things that are worth celebrating. So horrors are um, events that are motivated either by a malevolent will or by neglect that downgrade or deteriorate or damage a person. That's, that's the key idea with horrors. Where there was life, there's now an element of death. And because there's an element of death in someone, there's now an absence of a thing. So it's like if I burn my hand, there's only a stump left. Yeah. So there's something left of the person, but it's not the same, and it certainly isn't flourishing a whole anymore. So horror includes kind of the impact of death and that creates the absence of life. A horror is, as I said, sourced in an immoral will or neglect. And the hard thing about horrors is that it prevents persons flourishing as they would have otherwise. Mm. A big aspect of this book is talking about are human beings made in God's image that therefore have a moral, relational, um, creative and perceptive capacity? After horrors, we're not the same. Right? Um, you know, we've, we've met people who've been through horrors and there's damage to the moral, relational, perceptive and creative aspect. And not only is there damage in so far as that person is concerned, but it means that they're not there for others in the way that would have been otherwise. Yeah. So, for example... If I've been terribly abused as a child, I will have, and psychology will tell us this, um, chaotic attachment styles. And as an adult, I relate to you and to others in defensive ways. So that, that damage to me prevents me being there for you in such a way that you can flourish as much as what you would have through a healthy relationship with me. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a problem for the person directly impacted, but it's a problem for the people around them. Right, so they're the first three points. Death that, invades life. Sorry. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's, I think that's so helpful um, because you've done the work of, of Shalom. And um, Cole's, Graham Cole's, Dr. Graham Cole's book, uh, God the Peacemaker, one of the, yeah. best, one of the best theological books I've ever read. I really, really love that book. Tom McCall uh, made us read that. And I was, at first I was like, I don't know, man, but it was so, so good. And, yeah. and really that, that is kind of operating in the background of your book. And, and sure. the shalom idea is, uh, as it's kind of a trope now, people say it all the time, but it's not just peace. Um, Cornelius uh, planning on makes the same point, not the way it's supposed to be that it's like, yeah. it's thriving. And, and just what you said, when, when one of those things when one of us gets out of whack, it affects all of our relationships, which has this reverberation across, uh, across creation that this is not the way it's supposed to be even if one of those people was the only one who had trauma and horror it's still there are all these connections yes yeah so um so horrors they they damage the person they um are sourced in an immoral will or neglect and they they damage us and others and then the fourth thing about a horror is that it includes a trauma response yeah so this is the link between horrors and trauma Um, According to the DSM-5, which is the Medical Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual, um, a trauma response is a sense of being overwhelmed, threatened, even to the point of death, by by events that you can't control. Hmm. 
And that then kicks off a series of issues to do with the memory, to do with energy, and across the moral, relational, creative, and perceptive capacities. So, for example, one of the things that happens with trauma is, let's say you get bashed at the car park or your local um, supermarket. Um, You know, that happens so quickly you weren't expecting it. The reason you've got flashbacks is that your mind is trying to integrate an experience it never thought would happen. Yeah into the way it thought that life would occur. Mm-hmm. That's what flashbacks are. So a trauma response includes lots of well-understood phenomena from psychology, like your brain trying to integrate experiences that it can't, you therefore have flashbacks. Um, a huge amount of energy is devoted to your brain just trying to survive. You live in a, in a survival mode and, and so forth. So the link between horrors and trauma is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth dimension of a horror is that it's not possible to fully recover psychologically and epistemologically from this event. It doesn't mean you're done, doesn't mean you need to call it quits, doesn't mean your life's over, but it does mean that if you were going on, on one track, you've been, you've been taken on another track. And God can redeem and use and work through that, work through you in all sorts of ways, but life just won't be the same. And that's why horrors are horrors. That's why I use the language of horrors and not evils. Yeah. Um, uh, I I um, think that th- that um, description of horrors captures the um, disgustingness of it, how awful it is, how unnatural it is, its horrific consequences, and its links to trauma. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Do you think? Um, do you think that horrors? Do you think that we have too high of a bar for horrors? So, like, um, if if there were more, if like God created Adam and Eve, and then uh, a third guy, uh, Tom, and Tom can just watch Adam and Eve, uh, for for most of us, I don't know. It depends on how how biblical we are, I guess. We we probably wouldn't think of of Eve taking that first bite of the apple, disobeying God as a as a horror, in the same way as um, a tsunami killing thousands of people in your face or something, or a serial killer. Do you think that? that would have like horrified uh, a perfect human being. Like I'm just thinking if, if maybe uh, because we've experienced so much sin and evil that our threshold for horrors has risen. I just wanted to get your thoughts on like, should, should we be horrified by more stuff or is that kind of like out of our control? That's a psychological element. I, I agree with you, mate. Like you're, you're just tracking with, uh, with the ideas here in the book. Um, I make a distinction between, uh, gross horrors, so massive ones, uh, like having your arms amputated, being turned into a child soldier, being sexually abused, that kind of thing, um, which tend to be single, huge, high-threshold incidents, if you want to talk about it that way. Mm-hmm. And then I talk about commonplace horrors. Commonplace horrors deteriorate us because they're like a thicket of a thousand thorns that you try to walk through, yeah. and they just shred us. But they're little things. They're like a friend who betrays you, someone who lies about you, getting ripped off at the supermarket. Your pastor turns out to be having an adulterous affair. Um, your, your professor is intelligent but really nasty. Um, all these little things, again, degrade, um, strip back and damage our moral, relational, creative and perceptive abilities. Hmm. So, and that's part of us adapting to life outside of the garden. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of commonplace horrors 
that we experience that we're just used to, but they're absolutely inappropriate for images of God. Mm-hmm. And they have a callousing, hardening effect on who we are as persons. Yeah. yeah. So there's gross horrors, commonplace horrors, and then there's like objective and subjective horrors. Some yeah. horrors are objective. Um, uh, a child is assaulted. But then some are subjective. So after horrors in particular, you know, you very much experience a mindset, and psych studies show this, where you anticipate more of what's to come. Um, so, like, for example, I've been in two incidents of road rage where I've been the person attacked in traffic, um, and that's changed the way I drive now. <laughs> yeah. Like, I lock the doors, I'm on the lookout, you know, um, but that's a horror that's going on in my mind. Yeah. Like, the people around me might be fine. Yeah. So there's objective and subjective ones as well, and that's why when I thought about, well, okay, how do we go about thinking about God, the Trinity, and his actions in the world, I had to think about the objective and the subjective um, aspects of this, uh, which are found in Matthew's Gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Trauma literature, I know in in the psych world, uh, has been around for a little while and is developing. um, But in in theology, it's it's kind of a new thing. It's kind of just coming in. We're we're always, people always say that we're, uh, I think Francis Schaeffer probably nailed this one, but said the church is usually 20 years behind the the academy or secular academy. And so we're starting to get into it. I I got into trauma because, or just, I'm not into it at all, but I've uh, started learning about it because of, like Jordan Peterson talks about it. And I listen to him because I... I'm, yeah. I'm a campus missionary, so I'm, I'm always talking with guys. And then Paul Maxwell, um, who, who did his PhD under Kevin Van Hooser there, did the trauma of doctrine. And he's yep. recently left the faith. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah he, he got in early on, on trauma as well. How did you uh, you discover trauma literature? And, like, how did you get ahead of the curve here? <laughs> um, well, uh, I guess um, because I had been a nurse and had also worked in research after that in scientific research and my wife is a social worker Uh, i knew there was a huge body body of literature out there on trauma yeah and as i started to read the scientific stuff every now and again there was a mention of religious faith Hmm. so then i started looking up um you know christian databases uh to do with it and and here's the fascinating thing i found that liberal theologians like shelley rambo for example work on trauma, but but they explicitly say they don't want to do much with um, the cross uh, or the resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, huh. or the spirit. Um, so they have a limited place for God's work after trauma. Mm-hmm. Other theologians will want to say, hey, you know, we can we can only work with the cross. Uh, so that's Serene Jones, you know, God, God understands our suffering, but that's as far as it goes. Mm-hmm. And in God of All Comfort, I said, hey, let's, let's um, again, uh, using the Bible, let's be realists here. Let's plug into God's special revelation and see what he does with incarnation, cross, resurrection, gift of the Spirit. And so um, I guess one way we can talk about this is a way that um, Preston Hill and Josh Cocaine and I talk about it in a forthcoming book, which is, there's a paradigm if, uh, of where evangelicals sit on the trauma theology spectrum. Mm-hmm. If we think of uh, Easter weekend, a lot of liberal theologians might sit on Good Friday. It's all about the cross. Yeah. 
maybe Holy Saturday, okay? Some evangelicals in pastoral theology only, not systematics, they want to talk about full resurrection, mm-hmm. right? Full resurrection Sunday. Don't worry about what's happened. God heals us. It's all good, mate. Victory, 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 healing, healing, healing. And I'm like, nah, it's more like when you read the New Testament and also the church fathers and all that, it's more like the dawn of Sunday. Hmm. We need to write with one foot knowing the grief, the loss, the pain that continues. So one foot in Holy Saturday and then one foot in Resurrection Sunday. So Christians are at the dawn of Sunday insofar as we develop our theology of trauma, bringing uh, God's love, light, um, and life to bear on on death, damage, and trauma. Yeah. So that's where we need to sit is the, at the dawn of Sunday. Well, I think that's a great that's a great place uh, to place the already not yet right. Like we're yeah, sure. like it's perfect. Like that's that's a, a common theological phrase. Um, we're already not yet, but we might have some new horrors and new traumas tomorrow. So we can't just yeah. wave it all away and pretend as if everything's fine. I'm just going <clears> to <throat> faith my way through this. Now there's some real terrible horrors. And if you don't know that, then become a hospital chaplain, right? Like that <laughs> will wake you up to that stuff. Um, I think that's, that's really, really helpful. The one thing that, that um, I, I know some listeners well, will have this in mind. I have it in mind. The, uh, the, the fifth, the fifth um, criteria or, where, where's it at? I have it on here. The fifth uh, criteria is that you, it is not possible to fully recover psychologically and relationally from these uh, before death. So yeah. <clears throat> I, I know that's a, that's a tenant of like psychology. And that's why some um, biblical uh, counselors say like, Hey, theology, um, psychology is bunk because we can recover. There is recovery in Christ. And that's kind of what you're talking about with the, the uh, pastoral theology they're, they're saying it's recovery, it's all about healing, and you can be totally healed. Um, what do you make of that, of that kind of disagreement in, in Christianity, whether um, trauma continues on or you can be fully healed, even if you still have the memory? Like, Can you help us think through what, what you mean by that? Well, I guess I'm wanting to be careful and say it's not possible to fully recover, Okay. Okay. right, um, psychologically and relationally from these before death. Yeah. That's a very carefully crafted statement. Right. You can't recover from it fully psychologically because at the very least you know it happened. Right. You're never going to forget, okay? So it's part of your story. So when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about the many afflictions that he's been through, beatings, shipwrecks, stonings, rejection by his mates, he, he can't forget all that. Yeah. Highly traumatic stuff. He laments. You also can't recover from it relationally because at the end of the day, mate, I know that you betrayed me Hmm. and you set me up with your three mates and you beat the hell out of me in the car park. Hmm. So my relationship with you is altered. Yeah. So so this is a classic analytical claim. At minimum, this is the reality, but we can also make stronger claims, which is that... um, uh, God works in us so that we may recover slowly. We can regain. So a lot of the book has this language of it may be possible that we recover safety in such and such a way or we can grow in community in the following ways. Mm-hmm. So the final criteria says, look, 
this has happened, life's never going to be the same for these minimal reasons. Um, and it's never going to be the same before death. However, that's not the end of the story. Yeah. But life is simply not the same. I'm just trying to be realistic here, dealing with Paul, uh, his descriptions of trauma in 2 Corinthians, um, dealing with, I also write on martyrdom accounts in the early church. That's kind of my specialty in early Christianity. And I know that these Christians never recovered. And um, the reason why they wrote martyrdom accounts is to try to digest what was going on when they saw all their Christian mm. mates dying. Right. So, so there's a process of recovery that's always in place, and I think it's a psychological and theological reality. Yeah, man, that's that's really helpful. Um, yeah. So, lest lest anyone think uh, you're like being defeatist and saying no, there's no chance. No, no, it's not that. It's but it's it is careful because you also don't want to go to the other extreme and say a clean slate, like brand new everything. No, and and I think even. This is where I get into that kind of the, the greater good defense type stuff. Uh, I, I did my, my master's thesis uh, defending Van Hooser, actually uh, making a, a theodicy for him for his oh, wow. uh, authorial analogy. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and, and I think it's part of the story. Look, and the secret things belong to him. I'm not the author. I can't tell you why he allowed this, this, and this. And so it's, oh, that's it's kind right. of, yeah, just kind of fleshing out skeptical theism a little bit, um, just, just giving it uh, more putting it in perspective in the story but but yeah so like i i don't know all the answers and that's that's van hooser's whole outsideness the the author's outside the story but he's also in the story and so i can't pretend to be the author so i can't tell you that but i i can say i i trust the author's character even though it's crazy hard for me to understand all this trauma um that he's allowing that it seems like he's even perpetrating sometimes to you this in in, uh you know narratively situated um, okay, so that's that's really good. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit hope here. We we went in deep on some on some heavy <laughs> stuff. Um, man, is there is there hope for recovery? I, um, I know there is because you you brought up in the book. But can you lay that out for us? Sure. <clears throat> so after laying out this taxonomy, um, I show how it plays out in practice um, when we read the Bible. I, I thought, well, how do we how do we resolve these issues? Do we go to propositions and and logic and all that analytic stuff? I read a lot that said, nah, stories is a way to recovery, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, which story? Matthew's gospel, foundational story in the New Testament. But I I uh, I do weightlifting and all that stuff, and and one of my bodybuilding mates um, was reading the Bible with me, and I noticed that he could only pick up the bad stuff in the Bible because of mm-hmm. what had happened to him. So, for oh. example, he read about Jesus' birth. But in Matthew, there's all this terrible stuff, the massacre of the kids, his parents become refugees. Like my friend just could not see the good in it. And I realised that in Matthew there's a key point where Jesus introduces hope with respect to horrors and trauma. When he asks Peter, he says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're you're the son, you're the Messiah, the son of, of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not given this to you, rather my Father in heaven, the living God. And I took that as a hermeneutic cue because there is a perspective of flesh and blood that we live with. Even you and I, just in terms of commonplace horrors, you just get tired and sceptical, worn down and less available to others because life is horrific. But Jesus says, no, actually, there's a gift from the living God, the Father, that helps you perceive more deeply, that helped Peter perceive that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. 
So I took that as a hermeneutical key for moving from what literary theorists and writers in the horror genre call a paranoid reading Mm -hmm. to um, a reparative reading. So the, the beginning point for hope is a reparative hermeneutic that God himself gives us, the gift of the Father, the Spirit, and the Spirit gives to us so that we can see anew. That's the starting point. Hmm. That's so good. And and uh, you you almost lost me when you were getting into the hermeneutic stuff because I'm like, all right, dude, we're getting kind of continental here. Uh, but it, I thought it was so helpful, especially uh, I was working on my, my thesis at the time and trying to uh, make Van Hooser's more continental theology in, and, and uh, translate it into analytic theology. And, yeah. and then seeing you, you doing uh, similar things is really, really helpful. But you've also helped redeem the hermeneutic language for me because instead of just talking about, you know, hermeneutics of suspicion and we're reading the text, but it, looking at life. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that's really helpful. That's it's kind of what the Stoics talk about. It's a little bit what Jordan Peterson talks about. Um, you, how, what, what story are you living in? You know, and, and it's yeah. so cool when, when the Holy spirit changes your mind, he changes the story you're living in and you go from living in uh, a tragedy to living in a divine comedy and mm. um, not haha comedy for the, for those listening, but yeah, like, like a uh, you catastrophe as uh, Tolkien talks about it, where everything yeah. bad comes undone. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, uh, the, the the living father sends us the gift of the spirit so we can read the stories about Jesus in hope. Um, mm-hmm. So what we notice there, for example, is that when we come back to Matthew's gospel and we read with a reparative lens, seeing what the God of life can do, we see, for example, that in the genealogy, God actually orders history. He's providentially caring for Israel He's guiding things despite the weird characters and terrible events to which it refers so that he might take on flesh uh, for us and, and, and be Emmanuel, God with us. Mm-hmm. So we begin to see that objectively aside and outside of us and our experience, God actually has done good things in the past. Yeah. And then we begin to see that um, God uh, becomes flesh uh, in Christ, he then ascends, he sends his spirit so he can be with us forever. So the second piece of hope is that Jesus is the one who's united to us mm-hmm. and therefore he becomes the one trustworthy person that you have in your life and that's where recovery begins. Mm. I'm huge on union with Christ yeah, because I believe that in the wake of horrors, what we have as Trinitarian Christians is, is the gift of God himself in Christ through the Spirit who is our friend and our shepherd and our guide and Lord. Mm. And un, vital union with him means that he then shares his attention, intentions with us, and he begins to speak to us in a living way. Yeah. So that the world isn't just horrific, but books like Matthew and stories like that can come alive as he shares with us his attention and his intentions. Mm -hmm. And more than that, because we have a shared experience with Jesus, we know the world is greater than merely my perception on horrors. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And you touched on a lot of of what 
the phil- philosophical literature on friendship deals with with the shared attention and intention yeah. <laughs> uh quality time looking at the same uh I'm, I'm forgetting all the language but the same goals in mind there's there's some criteria that that needs to be met in order for friendship to take place and when you take that criteria as as you've just done and you apply that with with jesus it's not just a, a sing-songy you know oh what a friend we have in jesus no like he's your friend through the power of the holy spirit like no other and yeah. And I love that, that that brings us right to the first stage of recovery, which we, we, you lay out in the book. I think it, the first one is recovering safety, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Lewis Herman says that in order to recover from trauma, she's the great psychiatrist in the field, you need to recover a sense of safety, uh, have a new sense of self and engage with the community. Yeah. And I think uh, for Christians, as Paul speaks about it, uh, Peter as well, um, with the beginnings of safety is that you have Christ the one who accompanies you as shepherd and Lord. That's why if you have a look behind me, it looks like Jesus has in this painting, he's got his arm around me. Can you see that? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of cool. Um, so there's this famous icon called the icon of Menas, M-E-N-A-S. It's a famous icon in the early church where Jesus got his arm around Menas. It's my favorite one. Mm. And I always hand it out in discipleship groups and talks that I do. Um, yeah. So the first step is, a sense of safety with Jesus as Lord. He is the one human being who is pure-hearted, who always seeks uh, to do the right thing. He's righteous, he's humble and meek and so forth. So you begin to grow again in a healthy relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Secondly, God sends his, his love into our hearts. And that isn't just God sends his emotions, but he himself comes in the spirit as he adopts us as children. So there's an ontological change, it's a declarative thing. You're, you're my child, you're my beloved, I delight in you. It's a new beginning for us, but it's also an organic relationship hmm. and it can never be broken. Yeah. So going forward, you and I are always in a um, psychological, intellectual, loving, spirit-to-spirit relationship with God. So you have a sense of safety and because of that, subjectively, the bottom of the experience of horrors and trauma isn't as much an abyss as what it would be otherwise. Hmm. And we will have glimpses of how this works out in our life. I'm I'm probably going to go for a walk after recording this and I'll be praying and talking to Jesus and and he'll just bring things to mind. He'll bring scriptures to mind. He'll bring songs to mind. He'll draw my attention to something beautiful. He'll even draw my attention to a friend that needs prayer. You know, um, I have a sense of safety because I'm not, abandoned in the cosmos yeah i'm a big uh, lovecraft fan okay and uh in his writings it's essentially about small people that are just thrown into this chaotic universe who if they could put the pictures pieces together the picture they'd just crack up and uh-huh. fall into insanity because it's so dark and so remote and we're such nothings but god saves us from that yeah. um, so we have a sense of safety with him yeah. and then um the second piece, uh, recovering a sense of self, is, hey, um, and this applies to horror makers as well, which is also part of the book. Yeah. Even if you're a perpetrator, God calls you his child and begins to renew you such that you might become like Christ yeah. and therefore have new agency in the world. What so a scandalous, in- such a scandalous thing today, too. Like the, the world has has sympathy for... Uh, the traumatized and the, the horrified, and rightly so, of course. But yeah, there's sure. no room for forgiveness to perpetrators. No, yeah. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the direct messages and emails I've got 
has to do with the justification of horror makers hmm. and that people are very uncomfortable with that. And my reply is that's, that's the point about grace. Yeah. Look at Paul. He was a horror maker, right? Right. He was involved yeah. in murder. Seriously. Yet God forgives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I was very keen to have that in there. It's a very important point. Yeah. Um, God, God can save anybody. Yeah, and it's wonderful. Well, and it gives us, yeah, it gives us a new sense of self. Yes. Another thing that that you brought up, which which uh, was super interesting, was how the perpetrators are often just as traumatized. Like it's the same thing, yeah. just as traumatized. And that's that's a, a key theme I got. I took from Jordan Peterson, where he was working with these traumatized traumatized soldiers, and he said it wasn't stuff that they saw; it was stuff that they did that traumatized yeah. them. And he had to show them that there that they are there is a sense of evil. He had to give them a, a, the concept of evil because if they didn't have it, they didn't understand how they could do these things. But once they yeah. see themselves as evil, they're able to kind of start start the road to recovery which is so like counterintuitive but seeing yourself as evil having that concept so that was really i'm so glad you touched on that point as well but then in the christian response is there's grace for everyone and that's the like the 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 scandal of the cross today in at least in in this western culture yeah and and the key thing is you can become a different kind of person um, so so I play lacrosse and a lot of my mates, you know, they're kind of blue-collar tradesmen and all that, and they're used to, to violence. And I say to them, you know, the more violence that, that we do, the worse we become, hmm. right? So that's vice. And I said, you need to start doing good things so you'll become a better person through the doing of good things. Yeah. Let's not initiate kids into the lacrosse club by being savages, right? Yeah. Um, so let's start a new way. That's been a big push of mine in the club. And I think that's what Matthew's gospel tells us through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He, he, Jesus calls us, all of us, horror makers, survivors, many people are both. Yeah, um, I'm both, right. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, me too. Um, to, to become a humble, meek, to mourn over evil, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to become pure-hearted, um, to, to really go for the hard things, even if it causes suffering. And so the, Jesus' understanding is, mate, I'm in a relationship with you and I can guide you so that you may do good things for the good of others and that in turn changes you. Mm. So it reverses the aspect of horror, which is you're damaged, therefore you're not as available to others as a moral, relational, creative and perceptive person. Jesus gives us the gift Again, he, he returns us the gift of being good for one another. Mm. That's crazy <laughs> because, <laughs> because often we're just not good for one another. <laughs> Seriously, man. I mean, yeah. It's the best gift. I, I can be good for other people. That just absolutely changes the way a horror maker sees themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not sit here and wait until Christ comes back and then everything be okay. It's dude, you got work to do and you're, you're welcome into this community, but you're also welcome because God's given you gifts that other people need. And he's transforming, yes. transforming your, your self story for the good of other people, as well as the good of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of stories uh, in across Christian history of people who've been either mediocre, pretty mediocre types or just straight-up baddies who have been deeply transformed. Yeah. 
um, and become good for others. And I, I mean, I'm involved in mentoring circles and retreats and all that stuff. And the thing I love is that when you meet a 60-year-old Christian, you're often meeting someone who's far more human yeah. than what you are because they've been on this journey of Christ-likeness. Yeah. That's, that's why, you know, the Graham Coles of the world, they're older and they're the Jedi Masters yeah. because they're closer to Christ and they're more virtuous. Yeah. So the second part of recovery is that God gives us a new self, a new way of being. And also a new sense of that. I understand myself as a child of God growing in Christ-likeness. And it's not that the only the only outcome of my life is I'm going to get progressively worse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so safety, new sense of self. The, the, the new sense of self was I needed safety from myself. Um, right. And, and it, I didn't trust him for so long because it just seemed like he didn't have – he didn't give me the power. He had to love me because of the gospel. I, I said the magic words. I was in, uh, yeah. but but he, he I didn't have any power of my sin. And it, it was once once I was in college, and he gave me that new self story that I started to experience the safety. So it, it seemed like it maybe started there. Um, yeah, sure. and, and you know who knows whether it's this 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 right, but or if they all kind of come together or one after the other. But having that self story of saying I'm a child of God. And so I'm not going to do what I used to do because that's not yeah. what child, children of God do. I can't do that. I have a different story. I'm in a different place. And that's actually not me. And I lost a bunch of friends because of that, but I gained a yeah. whole bunch of new friends because of that. Right. And I still reached out. Some of my old, old friends came to Christ and now we're friends again. And oh, cool. I haven't shunned, shunned anyone, but just right. they've self-selected to not be friends because we're not doing the same stuff. And yeah. that the the self-story was was so huge for me, just being like, He's in control. He's my God. I do what he says because I'm not in control. I, this isn't my story. My yeah. story is within this grander story that he's showed me uh, mercy and grace and plucked me out and, and brought me over here. That's a great, I mean, that's a great story. Mm. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So I think what's happening there is that the the evidence that we're safe with God is the fact that now we have different motivations mm. and desires. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you can see that you changed. I wouldn't have changed this way. God's clearly at work. That then reinforces a sense of safety. Yeah. They go together. Yeah. And and I guess that's where the link with the uh, new community comes in because um, possibly uh, in your life, but I know in mine, one thing that's been really helpful has been that that it's been God working indirectly in my life, so through other people, that has helped me have a new sense of self because they've, for example, prayed for me, um, they've held me accountable, they've spoken words of wisdom into my life. This community has been the way that God has given me a new sense of self and that in turn reinforces the fact that I'm safe with God Yeah. because the fact is he has sent healthy people, Christ-like people, into my life and they have mediated the face of God to me. This is a huge point in the book. Perception is a massive issue with trauma. We, we perceive the world after horrors and after trauma as dangerous and threatening, and we, we don't see God's face. And it's not good enough to fall into, you know, Michael Ray's stuff into, well, God's just transcendent, so don't worry about it. No. God is revealed here now because, for example, in you, Parker, I can see some of God's qualities. Mm. So whenever God sends a Christian into my life, who is Christ-like, I can see what God is like. I can perceive that there is this living, 
loving God. And that changes my perception of the world. Mm. And that in turn will motivate me to live consistently as his child and grow in Christ-likeness. And that in turn reinforces the sense of safety. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. That's so exciting. And I think he does it in nature as well, right? You talk about going for a walk and he'll, he'll draw your attention to something beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and, and same, I, I love animals so much. I love yeah, catching frogs, turtles. I love seeing birds, everything, uh, plants. Uh, there is something different when it's coming from another image bearer yeah. and when they can use their speech acts and let you know, because you could look at nature and say, well, the female pregnantist cuts off the head of her spouse. Does that mean God is like, like no, dude, because we need the, we need the right hermeneutic, as you said. And that comes from words. We need the specificity that words have. And so for those who, who are trying to recover and uh, are recovering safety, recovering the selfless story, but not recovering community, you are missing out. It's not just going for walks. Uh, even if you're walking with your Bible and reading it in, in the woods, you need other image bearers of God uh, imaging God to you uh, and, and a redeemed, you know, uh, image bearer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a section at the end of the book, which a lot of people have enjoyed about pets. Hmm. Um, Cause we're, we're huge animal lovers here. We've had like all kinds of stuff and, and Rosie, the dog's here right now. Um <laughs> And I talk about pets being the paws of God in the world, P-A-W-S. Yeah. And how God in his kindness can send us dogs who lots of studies show, you know, dream about their significant others, they're empathetic and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, though, there's a species barrier there. (laughs) They love us across the species barrier. We love them. But they can't image God to us in the same way as a person. Right. So I know in my life... You know, the temptation is to surround myself with animals because they're not a threat. They're not a problem, mm-hmm. right? They're, mm-hmm. they're kind mostly, warm-blooded ones anyway. Uh, no offence to your turtles, mate. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> big fan of turtles and tortoises. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the temptation is to surround ourselves with pets, and we've got this huge pet culture right now, right? Yeah, dog moms, dog dog dads, yeah, papas, whatever dogs, they call them. I mean, we 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 dress up Rosie in like an elf outfit, a bumblebee outfit, like all, all the stuff, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, mate, she can't show me Christ qualities in the way that a an image bearer can, mm-hmm. and 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 that's why Hebrews says, you know, don't stop meeting together, because if you want to grow in love and good works, you need one another. Mm-hmm. So recapturing a, a Christ-like self and agency after. Uh, trauma and horrors requires that we have others as gifts to us. And the amazing thing is, is that in retrospect, when we look back at our lives, we can, we can see evidence of God's care in how he's dropped a couple of significant people at at times that have uh, encouraged us to grow in Christ likeness because in them we saw God's quality. So I love it. Hmm. It really strengthens your ecclesiology um, your desire for discipleship and, and to be involved. And the crazy thing is that maybe God's sort of drawing you to come across a neighbour. Yeah. You know, God's right. putting you in someone else's life as a channel of God's own um, qualities. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's insane. And I, that anytime someone says, hey, man, uh, you, you really were showed me God's grace today. And it's like, what? Like, if you knew who I was, man, if you knew even not not just who I was, but who I was a couple minutes ago, right? Yeah. It's not all, in, it's not already, it's Sunday morning, right? Already not yet. Um, yeah. So 
uh, it's it's that's a huge blessing to be used by God to be one of like, a tool oh, yeah. in God's hand. It's amazing that He could do that with someone like me. Yeah, it, it is amazing, and I mean, particularly for us like theologians who are into the doctrine of God, mm-hmm. and you understand that God is this great one Spirit who is the Trinity who upholds everything in His hands and grants everything existence in in a continuing way, that being, I mean, that's who we're talking about now. It's not like a buddy Jesus is kind of drawing me into a family franchise. It's the God, you know, it's amazing. That God draws us into his works. That, that is mind blowing. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, so, so finishing off on the the doctrine of God. um, Yeah. I mean, your book is a Trinitarian response and we've, we've, talked about it, but maybe not explicitly here. So uh, I described a quote, a Trinitarian approach to recovery from trauma is essential to realistically responding to horror-driven skepticisms about God. So people have the skepticism because of horror about God, maybe God doesn't exist. And and you're saying this Trinitarian approach uniquely uh, satisfies those, answers those, or or assuages those? mollifies those uh why why trinitarian um i'm i'm pumped about this i'm a trinitarian but uh, um could a could a unitarian grab this approach as well and and be consistent i don't think a unitarian can say that god himself has taken on flesh and united us to himself through the spirit Hmm. i don't think a unitarian can say that God is the absolute person because he's three persons in one and therefore he has created persons at the centre of his universe. Mm -hmm. So I don't think a Unitarian can say the same things. He can't say that I'm in union with Christ and this Christ is God and a, a human man such that my relationship with him will be perfect and will include the perfectly divine and the perfectly human as he brings myself and my community towards him. Um, I don't think that a non-Trinitarian can say that the Christ who accompanies us, who is our best friend, shepherd and Lord, um, was God himself who reconciled the world to himself. Mm. I don't think a non-Trinitarian can say those things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess they could say God is close and, and is a, like a powerful force on us by his spirit, but they wouldn't really be able to say that the Holy Spirit, he, so a person, dwells within you and I and our community. And I'll tell you why that's really important. There's a part of the book where I talk about the fact that in 2 Corinthians it says that God puts his concern into Titus's heart so that Titus might care for Paul. Yeah. That's only possible because the same spirit is dwelling within Titus and within Paul. Hmm. So the same spirit is the searcher of the depths who knows Paul's needs, knows exactly what he needs, and responds to those perfectly through putting God's same concerns in Titus's heart so Titus might be the appropriate carer for Paul. Yeah. And we also see it on a community level. The, the Christians uh, in the north they get together a gift for the Christians in Jerusalem out of a concern that God puts into their hearts. Mm. So it's only because God the Spirit is a he, a personal God, that dwells within each and knows the depths of each, that God can then send appropriate Christian care into our lives. That's in 2 Corinthians. So, look, 
I think that's just another reason why a Unitarian couldn't make the same argument that there is great evidence for God's care for us in Christ and through the Spirit in particular in a way that a Trinitarian can. Yeah. Man, I love that. I don't know if I I caught it in the book and now it's making more sense because I'm talking with you, but... The idea of of the Holy Spirit putting cares well, there's intentionality there, right? So that's that's a person. Uh, in inanimate objects don't have intentions at all. That's right. So yeah, yeah, the Holy Spirit's a person, but just that that's that all made sense. As you were describing that, I just thought, man, we all kind of have there's a, a back door to all of our hearts, uh, back door in like a you know uh, computer sense, like someone hacks yeah, into sure. your your computer. And it's the Holy Spirit. He's got this back door, and you and I are connected through the through the Holy Spirit. And that's yeah. I, I know that. But now you, you just kind of help me have some more hangers to to hang stuff on. That like there's this back door, and He can give me your cares with because He's in there. He's he. It's the same He who is yes. uh, indwelling all of us. Uh, yes, which is super fantastic. I, I think also, uh, I, I think I did me- uh, see that you you brought up uh, absolute personality. Uh, in there, which is a key word for me, man. I love that. I got that from Van Til, but he got it from Bavink. And uh, I love absolute personality language. And I, I, I like the connection you make to to uh, personalism there, that a Trinitarian God can have a world of persons and it would make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Yeah. So, so yeah. I love the fact that as Trinitarians, we can say that God has general empathy for us. Mm-hmm. But in the incarnation, God himself takes on flesh. And as Hebrews says, he he, he suffers, he struggles for faithfulness, he cries out to the Lord. He generally knows what it is to be a human being because of the incarnation. Mm. That's a Trinitarian claim. Yeah. But then God has this specific empathy through the spirit, through that I-thou relationship. Yeah. yeah, And that's absolutely unique. Yeah, mate, so there's there's great treasures in Trinitarian theology. And yeah. I, I sort of, um, I mean, Fred Sanders said this in his in his review of the book, he's like, yeah, this breaks new ground and it's kind of a fresh area of Trinitarian theology. Um, it, it's seeing God at work, but it's particularly as God the Trinity, not God yeah. in general. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I love Trinitarian theology. It helps us to see what's going on, helps us to be realists. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, I think it actually does match a lot of, well, at least a lot of my, I can speak for myself, a lot of my lived experience that this is kind of what I've, experienced going from my own trauma being sexually abused as a kid uh to becoming a traumatizer in my teens to right. and then seeing that that this is how it happened yeah recovering uh self-story and safety and community and being this this wretched roach myself who i have a, a phobia of roaches actually too but um <laughs> but in the hands of god i'm his tool and i'm able to to um be redeemed and have a new story and it's just uh, it's it's awesome, man. But I think you are touching on. Um, it's not just good Trinitarian because that's who we are. It is, but it's also matching up. Uh, we're we're realists. This is what what really did happen in in my lived experience, and I'm assuming yours and, and many others. So, um, I love that aspect, and I also love that there's like a a God who is Trinitarian, who's absolute personality or an absolute person has the Trinitarian shalom uh, in mm-hmm. himself. He doesn't need. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to create persons in order to have relationship with and the, the shalom, perfect uh, relations. It, it comes out of him. He's assay because he, uh, he's he's it's able to to uphold assayity 
because he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us for no. a relationship. He is perfect. He doesn't need us for shalom. He has inner Trinitarian shalom beforehand. And so that's the kind of God who can continue to work even in the, uh, the horrors of this world because he's, mm. he's of himself. He's perfect. He's got perfect blessedness and out of that yeah. can flow to us. Yeah. 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 I, I love what you said. I mean, understanding who God is like having a big picture of God really helps us understand our lived experience. Yeah. You know, and, and it is good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not abstract good news. It's good news that we've experienced and that when we understand it well, we can understand why we've experienced things right. as we have. Yeah, that's the best. Theology, meeting, personal experience, meeting, you know, all, hitting on all the aspects of our being, man. I love it. So I, I highly recommend this book, The God of All Comfort, uh, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World by Scott Harrower. Um, Scott, man, as we're closing up here, uh, where can people find uh, you or more of your work if they're if they're interested in that? Yeah, sure. So I work at Ridley College in Australia and people can look me up and email me there. I'm also on Facebook, so um, people can get in touch there. And the book's available on Amazon or any kind of good book supplier. Yeah. yeah it's, look, it's been lovely to talk with you, Parker. Yeah. It's, it's great. And, mate, thanks for sharing uh, your story as well. I yeah. treasure that and I honour that honesty. So thanks for sharing that. And I'm, I'm just delighted to hear about God's work in your own life. Yeah. Man, so uh, th- thanks for all that. I, I love your stuff too. Uh, you got to come back on. You're writing more books. You got to come talk about those, talk about the other stuff. Um, no definitely. Please come back. Uh, but you, you'd mentioned you you uh, you want to say a prayer for uh, be- before we go. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've got a, um, a prayer that I often pray um, at the beginning of the day. Um, and so I'm just going to read it now and, and you can uh, just listen if you'd like. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's from uh, Brueggemann. <clears throat> he says, God of all newness, we come to you this day in daring hope. For healings we want yet to receive, believing in them, while the world says it's not possible. God of Exodus and Easter, God of homecoming and forgiveness, God of fierceness and peaceableness, we're finally driven to your miracles. This day hear our urgency and do amongst us what none of us can do. Do your Friday-Sunday work yet again and make us new. We pray out of the shattering death and simmering new life of Jesus, whose name we hear. Amen. Amen, man. That was awesome. That was awesome. That might be one of the first times. That's a shame that that's like the first time we prayed on air here, but that's, that's awesome, man. I'm going to have to listen back to that. And, uh, and no you, said, you said that was, that was Brugman. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the reference. Um, let me have a little look. Sorry, something else has popped up on my screen. No worries. It is um, from, uh, quote, uh, while the world says not possible, it's in Brueggemann, um, Awed to Heaven, Rooted in Earth, pages 121 to 122. Awesome. Awed to Heaven, Rooted in Earth. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was really good because uh, 
as we said in the beginning, it's it's apologetics, it's uh, pastoral theology, biblical theology, it's biblical <laughs> studies. It's it, man, that's what it's supposed to be, and I think that's really great. Uh, it's a testament to to uh, to Ted's, to you, and and to all you Aussies down there, man. You got you guys got a lot going on down there. It's it's fantastic. Um, yeah, so right. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just wanting to say, like, it, it it's another example of how the world how God works in the world together. Like yeah. Illinois is where God really shaped me through people like McCall, um, Graham Cole, Van Hooser, the biblical scholars there, Sweeney. Yeah. Um, you know, so again, I mean, my own experience is, yeah, God just gifts us with great people. So I'm I'm really glad uh, to have gone to TED's and and even to hear this podcast and get to know people like you. God, God works through his body. It's lovely. Yeah. Amen, man. All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to continue this conversation later. Uh, Lord willing, uh, Scott, we'll we'll come back on. But for now, it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.